following talk is from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's really nice to be here. Um, I appreciate today has been outrageously hot. Someone said to me today, and I'm not really supposed to say this, but it is too hot today. It is crazy. Um, I had the privilege of um, speaking this morning as well. So I am... uh, I'm not tired because I've napped and mowed the lawn and I feel awesome and ready to go. But um, I appreciate for many of us, we have been in the sun and right now it's hitting like sleepy time, right? We just want to nap. And unfortunately, my grating voice is not going to allow that. So let's just, let's just embrace it. Let's just embrace it that my irritating voice is going to stop you falling asleep. Um, and we're hopefully going to learn something about Jesus tonight. So, um, some of you will know we've been working our way through Ephesians, uh, and Ephesians is a dense book. There's a lot in there. Uh, I'm going to go through an entire chapter today, which is crazy and ambitious. What it means is I'm basically going to take this huge chapter and pull some bits out of it. Um, We're about week seven into it. I'm kind of losing count now, but it is all about mission. And I'm going to begin with a story taking us all the way back to ancient Egypt, ancient, not ancient Egypt, ancient Israel. It's a long day. Give me a break. <laughs> all the way back to ancient Israel. And there was a man named Saul. There was a man named Saul who was a zealous Jew who was passionate about the Jewish scriptures. And there are Christians who are proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the savior, that he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And he hates it. And many other Jews, they hate it. And so what he's doing is he's going house to house and dragging out these Christians and throwing them into prison. And what happens is uh, we see this as time where he gets these documents that allow him to go to Damascus and continue persecuting more Christians, to continue um, throwing in prison and even killing these Christians. And so he's on the road heading towards Damascus with these documents. And then what happens is in this beautiful, glorious, shining light, Jesus appears to him. And you just think for a moment, what must have been going through his head at that time when he'd been persecuting people for proclaiming Jesus, and then the risen, exalted, glorious Jesus appears to him. Oh dear. Oh dear. But what Jesus says is, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting my church? And what we see is that that Jesus at that time explains his gospel to Saul, that I am not only going to change you, I'm going to stop you persecuting my people, I'm going to make you someone who proclaims the gospel. Isn't that ironic? That someone who was there killing Christians is now proclaiming Christ to everyone he can get his hands on. And we see that in Acts. Right? You, you read through Acts, it's just this beautiful story of God building his church through people like Saul. We see Saul goes away, and there's something, something physical that happens because he's blind at the time, and, and these scales fall off his eyes, and he sees physically. But more than that, he sees spiritually, and there's something of the gospel that just clicks and makes sense. And we see from that moment, he begins proclaiming this beautiful gospel. And we see him going from town to town, proclaiming the gospel, starting a church, the next town. For about 20 years, right, a long time, until we get to the book of Ephesians. And he's writing this book of Ephesians. And we're reading about this gospel. And he says in chapter 2, verse 4, God being rich in mercy 
Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's the gospel. And it's the same gospel in Ephesians that he, was, that he learned from Jesus on the road to Damascus. And if you think about it, for 20 years, the gospel hasn't changed. And it's so important that we understand the significance of that. But it doesn't stop there. The Ephesians go and they receive this letter. They receive this encouragement. They receive these instructions. And they go and they share the gospel. And they see the gospel go forward. They see people become Christians. They see churches get started. And we see the, the gospel go from town to town, from city to city. And slowly, God's good news covers the whole of Europe. And we see that over the years, over the decades, the hundreds of years, the gospel endures the persecution of the Roman Empire and the politics of the Roman Empire. It was a messy time to be Christian. You were either being like put on a stake and burnt alive or thrown to lions or your Christianity was being used, was put on a pedestal and was distorted for the sake of the Roman Empire, which is what happened a little bit later on. And it's just a mess, but we see the gospel injured. And then we get to the Middle Ages. Some of you know about this. It's called the Dark Ages, about a thousand years. And one of the reasons it was called the Dark Ages is there was a real spiritual darkness. The church, again, lost its way. That it, that it misunderstood this idea of grace. That there was some terrible legalism for a long time. But we see the gospel injured. It was underground for a while. But then we get to the Reformation. We see Martin Luther, who opened his Bible, read about this gospel, and realized our church does not understand this. Something needs to happen. He hammers his theses to a church door, and the Reformation begins. Thousands of Christians again die because this gospel has divided people. Because people have realized we need this beautiful good news from God. And then we get through to the Enlightenment. You see where I'm going here. We get through to the Enlightenment. And there are new philosophies and new ideas about what it means to be alive, what it means to have purpose and meaning. And again, the gospel is attacked, but it endures. More churches are planted. More people become Christians. And then we get all the way to now in modern-day Europe. I've skipped over a lot of history here. Just bear with me. Right, we get to modern-day Europe. We're surrounded by cathedrals and monuments. And there's bits of our English language that are, you know, have bits of the Bible in it. But for so many in our culture, we're spiritually dead right? Yet, we are seeing the gospel go forward. We are seeing the gospel endure, that churches are still being planted, that we are part of one family of churches in a world full of many families of churches that are seeing the gospel go forward. Our churches are being filled. People are still becoming Christians. The gospel is still going forward. And it's so important that when we see all the way back in Ephesians and all the way back in the gospels when Jesus was proclaiming this good news for the first time, that this is the same gospel that we are proclaiming today. And it's so important because our culture changes its mind about things all the time, right? You could take anything. You could take marriage. You could take, you know, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to have purpose? It changes about every 20, 30 years, right? And some of you haven't been around for 20, 30 years, but in 20, 30 years' time, you'll look back and be like, man, a lot of stuff has changed, like major things, like the way we process what it means to be human, but the gospel hasn't changed at all. And friends, when we open the word of God, and I kind of I forgot my physical Bible, right? So I imagine for a moment, when we open the word of God, 
when we hold these words in our hands, when we clear time in our diary to spend time learning from the Word of God, this is not just some good advice. This is not just, you know, a helpful Twitter-sized bit of encouragement. This is the good news that has endured for thousands of years and will endure for thousands more. It has transformed the lives of billions, and it will continue to transform the lives of billions more. And so we find ourselves in this point of history with, if you like, a great cloud of witnesses, many men and women who have gone before us, who, who have allowed the gospel to reach us thousands of miles and thousands of years away from that time in Israel a long time ago. The gospel has reached us, and we have the question, what do we now do with it? What do we do with this good news? And we have some questions to ask of ourselves. What are we going to do with this? And I remember I was challenged by this when I became a Christian, and I realized this has the power to not just change my life, but to change other people's lives. And so when we open this and we go through this, it's a God thing. It's not, you know, I'm not going to say the right things. The Holy Spirit is going to work in our hearts, and he's going to challenge us, and we need to be ready for that. So, without any further delay, let's begin in chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power and through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask and think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Lord God, would you lift our eyes from our lives and to you. Lord God, it is so easy for us to be distracted. Uh, by everything that goes around us, the, the stuff we've got on this week, what's gone on this Sunday. Lord God, the words you have to us are like gold. They are so valuable. They are so helpful. They are so important for us as your people to cling on to. God, would you open our hearts tonight? Would we be ready to hear what you have for us?
God, would we leave here changed men and women? Would we leave here more in love with you? More in love with your gospel that can change the lives of the people around us who we care about. In your beautiful name, amen. So this is, as I said, this is dense. I have picked out five points, right? You, you've been here before. You know how this is going to go. Right, you've picked, I've picked out five points because I can't get away with a billion, right? And we'll be here for a long time. So, uh, so I'm going to begin with number one. We steward God's grace. This is what it means to be missionaries. We steward God's grace. Paul begins with this, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. This is, this is interesting, and it grates against the way that we, as in part of a consumer, consumerist culture, view things that we get. Paul says, I received the gospel. And, and we, we see that in this, in this story when he's on the road to Damascus. He receives this gospel. It's quite violent. He gets knocked over, but he receives this gospel. But what he's saying there is that I received it to steward it. I received it to do something with it. And I think it's quite easy for us as Christians, particularly, let's be honest, in the burbs, right? It's quite easy for us as Christians to be like, this is my life, my house, my castle, you know, it's my commute, it's my job, it's my world. And Paul would say, no, it's not. The gospel was given to you to give. The gospel was given to you in a way that should change the way you live. See, Paul could have done something with the gospel that would perhaps fit the more suburban model, right? He could have received the gospel, gone home, praise God, and then just lived his life quietly, <laughs> enjoying Jesus in private putting on Hillsong, you know, just the, you know, whatever, whatever you do as an, as an Israelite in that time to enjoy Jesus on your own, what he does is the, the most suicidal thing he possibly could have done and proclaim Jesus to the Jews, right, who hated him, right? This guy pretty much immediately was getting death threats. He, he immediately knew what it meant for him to receive this gospel. Something went through his mind that meant the rest of my life is going to look different because of what Jesus has done for me, because of what he has done in my life. And, it, and this isn't just for Paul. This is for all of us. If the gospel has changed your life, it must change others. It's not something that we can just keep for ourselves. And I think sometimes it's quite easy, and I, I do this at work. I go to work, and I forget that the people I work with, the people I care about, the people I get on with are in darkness. That's what the Bible says that they are lost and without hope. And yet the gospel is the keys to life. And I have that. And I've just got to figure out, God, how do I help people to understand this incredible good news? And that is, that is for all of us. That is this, this mystery. And I think it's so key that we come back to this time and time again and say, God, because you have given to me, I will give to others. Uh, it's unusual as well because the politicians in our land at this particular moment will often tell us that when you have something, it's yours to keep. It's not yours to give. And God would say something very different. I have given you talent to be a blessing in this world, to not be a curse, but to be a blessing. And we can get so used to the, the Western way of thinking about our stuff that we forget that we're here to be a blessing, and particularly through the gospel. Number two, we are empowered 
by God's grace. So some of you, some of us may look at Paul and think, well, Paul, that's great for you. You're clearly very gifted. You know, you're great at speaking. You're clearly quite a good writer. You wrote a bit of the Bible, you know. You're clearly a pretty gifted guy. But how can I possibly do the things that you are? How can I put myself next to you and in any way match up? How can I do the things that you do? Surely you're a one-off. Surely you're the kind of guy, go fill a stadium, do your thing, let me do my thing. But Paul would say this, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. God's grace is this, unmerited, undeserved favor from God. And Paul says, apart from this gift of God, I can't do anything. And the only reason I'm a minister here is because God's grace has been poured into me. What that means for you and I is that there's hope, right? There is hope. Um, <clears throat> at the moment, I'm, uh, we literally just bought a house this week. It's very exciting. It's very exciting. Um, and uh, one of the things is I suddenly have to really up my DIY game. So what happens when you're you know, a bit poor because you spent a lot of money on a house uh, and you need to, to get a bunch of tools? You go to Poundland, right? That's what, that's what all of us do. That's what all of us do. They have a lot of tools and you're like, how on earth did they make so many tools for one pound? And then you buy them and use them and you realize why, right? And you realize why. And, and I think the reality is when, when for all of us, when we are looking at being used by God, we can feel like Poundland tools, Right? We can feel unequipped and sometimes a bit rubbish at the job set ahead of us. But it's not about us. It's about God. And so what that means is God is going to build his kingdom and build his church with Poundland tools for the glory of God. Amen? We can all relate to that, I would hope. (laughs) Number three, despite our weaknesses... In verse 8, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. I love what God says about our weakness. I love it. God doesn't try and kind of pretend that we're brilliant. He's quite, he's quite honest with us. You suck a lot of the time, right? You see, over and over again, God's speaking to Israel. You guys are idiots. You see, the way that Jesus talked to his disciples, you guys are idiots. How long will I be with you guys? You are morons, Right? But what we see is Jesus saying, no, 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 it's by my grace that I will use you. And in fact, more than that, it's, it's I will use your weakness. There's a, an amazing freedom in this. And Paul elsewhere says, but he, that's God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do we boast in those times? Do we look at the times when we have insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities and say, Praise God! Look at my weakness! Do we boast in them? Why on earth is Paul saying that? He's saying that because he understands the gospel. That, That when we... When we understand who Jesus is, it has nothing to do with our abilities and strength. It has to do with his power working through us. I love it when I'm chatting maybe to people who aren't Christians about Jesus or the church or whatever, and they say, yeah, but but Christians are rubbish. And see, if I was part of a different religion 
Well, I would have to do, and they were talking about that, I would have to say, well, actually, you know, you know, they're not really part of the religion. They're kind of rubbish at it. And actually, you know, people who follow my religion are really strong inside. They become better people. They're wonderful at it. No, no, no. I, I don't have to say that as a Christian. As a Christian, I can say, praise God, Christians suck. And isn't it wonderful that a God is gracious to us, that he loves us all the more. And more than that, that he will use Poundland tools to build his kingdom. There is hope for all of us. And so I'd say for when this week, for when in the months to come, for when we face weakness, let's look at this weakness and say, God, what are you doing through this? Where do you want to humble me? Where do you, you want to use me for your good purposes? Um, in the lead up to launching Album, uh, I basically lost my job quite abruptly. I didn't do anything wrong. But one of the big pressures, we were looking ahead towards Eltham, and what we really needed was a stable working life so that we could do Eltham, right? Because my focus wasn't really on my job at the time. My focus was on Eltham, right? And this was bad news. And it was a moment of real weakness. Some of you guys will know this, right? Your job is your thing, and you focus on it. And when something goes wrong with it, it's a moment of weakness. And I remember I was praying with a few guys about it. And I told this buddy of mine that I've lost my job. I know what he said. Praise God. (laughs) What? (laughs) Praise God. And what he says was, God uses us most in our weaknesses. It's when things like this happen that we know, God, I have to trust on you. The world says, be more independent. God says, no, be more dependent upon me. And sometimes it takes these weaknesses to get ourselves in a position where God can use us. And you look at the Bible and it's full of that. You know, who does, who does God exalt? People who he's first shown all of their weaknesses, right? And we have the amazing opportunity um, to be honest, actually, with our weakness. To be honest with the fact that we fail, that stuff goes wrong, but we love and follow a God of grace. There is hope for all of us, friends. There is hope for all of us. And this is wonderful news. And it will release us to be better at sharing his gospel because it means that we are able to, uh, we don't have to pretend that we're great, pretend that we have it all sorted, but we can present to the people around us our broken lives and say, look what God has done for me. I was a mess. In fact, I am still a work in progress, but God loves me all the same. It is so releasing. There is enough legalism in this world. God is the only option for us to to bring grace. And it's wonderful. So when we're sharing this gospel, when we're having those conversations or those friendships, I don't feel you need to hide your weakness. In fact, let's boast of our weaknesses. I'm a pound land tool, and God loves me and uses me. Praise God. It's a very good thing. Number four, sharing the riches of Christ. Verse 8 says, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Some of you will be familiar with the parable that Jesus tells of this merchant. Assumedly, he's quite wealthy. And he finds this field. And in this field, he finds this treasure of great value. And there is this moment. There is this moment where the merchant, he looks at the treasure, and he looks at all of, all of his possessions. He looks back at the treasure and back at his possessions. And he does the maths, and he realizes, this is worth more than everything I have. And he sells everything to buy this field, because he's just made a huge profit. 
And Jesus tells it because it's a picture of what it is for us to be Christians. That when we see Jesus, when we see how glorious he is, exactly what he's done for us, the riches of being sons and daughters in Christ, having an inheritance in Christ, I could go on and on and on. What we have in Jesus is undefinable riches. And what this means is that the gospel captivates us. And the, rea- and the reality is we are unable to share his gospel unless we get this. Because when Jesus says, come and follow me, he says, I want you to sell all of your stuff. Like, not literally. <laughs> not literally, but he says, I want you to turn from your old life and follow me. And what he gives is the most amazing riches. And unless we're actually convinced that Jesus is worth it, we're not going to ever share his gospel. Unless we actually spend time to focus on Jesus and receive him as our king, as our everything, it's never going to make sense. Because we're going to look at what other people have in their life and say, well, actually, what you've already got is probably better than this. Because I don't really appreciate Jesus that much. If we're going to be effective at sharing his gospel with those who are without Jesus... We actually need to appreciate how unbelievably valuable knowing God actually is. And this will change our life. Um, for me, I, was, uh, I became a Christian about 17. And one of the things that, one of the things that, uh, that happened is I had a, I had a, I had a brother uh, who uh, was about a year behind me called Liam. And, uh, and I, just, I just remember at the time being so passionate about seeing him meet Jesus. And there was, something about, there was something about when I realized how wonderful Jesus was. I realized I can't leave my brother alone anymore. Liam has to have this. And I just badgered him and badgered him and badgered him. I'm his brother, so I can kind of get away with it. But it was, it was an amazing opportunity. And my brother became a Christian. And I look back on my 17-year-old self and, and, and realize, like, how on earth did that happen? I had so little clue about what was going on. And not even like, like systematic theology. I had like the basics of Christianity I did not get, right? And yet God used me in my weakness because something happened where I understood the riches of Christ and Liam saw that. And it, it, it was an encouragement for me because I'm like, well, if God can use me at 17, he can use me now at 26. It's wonderful. It's very good news. Number five, through the body of the church. I think this is probably the most, um, one of the most sensitive points because we're in a culture at the moment that isn't a massive fan of the church, right? Or structured religion at all, or anything with authority for that matter, right? And so it is, I found as a Christian, sometimes, you, actually quite often, you, there are a lot of Christians who, they're like, I have this relationship with Jesus and sometimes maybe I have church. And essentially, they kind of dance around a little bit. But here's, here's what Paul says. And to, br- and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This mystery being revealed is the gospel. And he says, my gospel is going to be revealed through the church. Now, like when Paul became a Christian, there's plenty of other ways that he could have revealed the gospel, right? He could have done things like this. He could have done parachurch organizations, right? A great organization with a mission to share the gospel with loads of people. He could have uh, gone out on his own. He could have started made tons of charities. He could have started loads of Bible camps. He could have started, you know, like Kickstarters for Jesus. He could have done all these things. But what does he do? 
It goes from town to town, and he starts churches. And he starts churches. Why is that? It's because God intends for his gospel to go forward through us, through the church. And there is, in, in other bits of Ephesians, he plans out what the church should look like. He sketches it out. He gives this, this beautiful 3D picture of what the church looks like. We don't do this because we love organization and we love structure. We don't do the church because we're bored. Right? We don't do the church because it just seems like a nice way of bringing stuff together. We do the church because this is God's plan A for him revealing his gospel to the world. And some of you may have noticed who've been here for longer than, you know, 10 seconds. This church is not perfect, right? This church has tons of weaknesses. But we endure, we commit to serving and loving the church because we believe it's God's plan A. This church and other churches like it, that God wants to use this church. And I think... It's, I, love, I love having guys of, let's say, this kind of age, because I know particularly when we were doing more student stuff when I was in Manchester, and um, it, was, it, took, you know, it was often for people quite quick to get who Jesus was. It took a lot longer to understand what the church was and the significance of it and why it mattered. And in part, it's because of this stewardship thing that when we receive Jesus, we receive Jesus and feel like, well, I, well, I don't need to do anything with it now. And God says, no. I have saved you for something so much more beautiful and glorious than this. I haven't just saved you so you can go lock yourself away for the rest of your life. I have saved you so that you can be a light to the world, a city on a hill. See, when Jesus saves you and he changes you, he does something with you that just looks beautiful. And some of you might not believe that, right? But God changes hearts and he makes it attractive to the world around us. And sometimes we need to make active decisions to put that on display, right? A good example would be literally about two hours ago. And uh, we've just, we haven't moved into the house, but we're kind of doing little bits of jobs. So I was mowing the lawn and we have like this lower fence and my neighbor for the first time popped a head over the fence. Hiya. Like quite abruptly. I was pretty shocked. Um, but I had, I had a split second there to figure out what do I do? Because you can kind of do the British thing and just chit chat your way out of it, Right. <laughs> Or you can see, actually, God, God, this is an opportunity. And in that split second, be like, God, I have the most amazing good news, and this is an opportunity to begin a friendship with someone who probably doesn't know it. Would you use this? And so we got chatting, and we talked about whatever you talk about with a 60-year-old woman, right? And it was great. <laughs> we had an awesome time. It was lovely. And uh, part of it was, you know, we got to talk about a little bit about church and, you know, the church that I'm part of in Eltham. And, and you know, it, 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 was, it was great. It was awesome. But I had to make a little decision there. And if we're going to be missionaries, it is about decisions. And... Uh, I love, I love having these conversations, particularly with guys, particularly with guys who are like 20s and you know, early te- like late teens, because you're in a place of life where you're making so many decisions. And, and part of it decides actually the trajectory of the rest of your life. It's the reality. And there are little decisions and big decisions. The little decisions are like the one I made two hours ago, right? And I don't always make the right one, right? In fact, plenty of the time, I do not. So I'm like, praise God, I have an example to use, right? Because most of them are like, oh, there's another missed opportunity. But there are so many opportunities, little opportunities. I'd say it begins with a little opportunity of, of figuring out, God, I need you in my life. Every day, I need to be opening your word. I need to, to, to be letting it transform me and change me. Because if we don't understand the riches of Christ, we're just not going to share him. Because we genuinely don't think he's that great, Right? 
But when we're captivated by Jesus, he is the first thing on our mind. And we want to share him. It's little decisions like that. It's also little decisions in the, um, who do we choose to build friendships with? You know, at work, it's, it's the classic decision of I could either engage wholeheartedly and fully with my work or actually start building genuine friendships with people. And this is about, particularly in London, no one wants friendship in London. <laughs> they want to make hard, cold hash, cash and then go home, right? Okay, that's a massive generalization, but I did work at a bank once, and that's pretty much exactly the case, yeah? So, so, but I think the reality is you, you are going against the stream of culture here. And it's these little decisions to say, no, 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 people who are made in the image and likeness of God are valuable. They need to hear this gospel. They need to hear this good news. There are little decisions like that. There's also big decisions. And these, I think, are really sensitive. This is the thing where I think I am most offended when God goes for the big decisions. Big decisions like, what career do you take? What career do you take? Is there the opportunity to see God's gospel go further if you take this career versus this career? As a little bit of a hint, it's normally the one that gives you less money, right? <laughs> there, is, there is so many, and London is a classic example of it. And I've been, I was part of a church called CCL in London, and this was like always their challenge because they had tons of high-flying professionals, and the challenge they were always bringing to people was, okay, if you were a Christian, is your life being lived for him or for the high-flying political job or the high-flying lawyer job or the bank you work for? Because you have to make that decision. And you will have to, as a Christian, if you want to see him work through you, you will have to say no to some amazing jobs. You will. You will have to. When you're looking through jobs, you will have to figure out in advance, God, what am I going to do? What's going to serve you? And, and some of you, there are people in this church who their mission field is their work. Praise God. Praise God that there are people doing that. For some of us, perhaps we're in a job just because it's comfortable and it earns well. But God would say, I redeemed you. I love you. I want to send you. And sometimes, not all the time, that means taking a worse job, right? Big decisions. There are other big decisions, like who do you marry? Oh gosh, we could be here for a long time, right? But who you marry is a really big deal. There are, there are more reasons than I can go into. But one of the reasons is that if you want to be used by God, marry someone who also wants to be used by God, right? You're going to... Marrying someone who is in a completely different world spiritually means that you are going to spend your whole life feeling, feeling split, being divided. And if you want to be used by Jesus, like, and, and you can choose this. I know we're in this culture that kind of says, oh, we fell in love, and then I was lost, you know, and I had no hope, and I couldn't decide. You have a decision on who you choose to make a friendship with and then marry. Can I say that? Is that right? Have I just crushed Disney love? <laughs> the reality was, and I, I was wrestling with this as a student and wrestling with this as a teenager. When I became a Christian, I made the wrong decision with that. I was like, sure, I can be a Christian and marry someone who believes completely the opposite about Jesus. Oh gosh, that was the worst decision ever. Nine months of my life, I just didn't grow in Jesus at all. I was not available to be used by him. And friends, some of you will hear this and will ignore it, you know? And, and one of the biggest encouragements for me in following Jesus, in loving his mission, has been marrying my wife, because she loves Jesus too. And it is such an amazing encouragement. And it is such an amazing blessing when I'm like, sweetie, there's a guy I really want to meet with and share the gospel with, and she's like, you know, go for it, go for it. 
Let me, you know, reschedule whatever else we were doing. And it means that I can be passionate about Jesus. And you know what? We can do it together. There was something so beautiful about that. And so, like, it is okay to wait. Can I say, can I say that as well? It is all right for wait, to wait. And there were times in uni when I didn't wait. And I started dating someone I shouldn't have. And then I'm like, oh, what have I done? And it took a few mistakes for me to realize, okay, here's how not to do it, and here's how to do it. And where possible, learn from the mistakes. Learn from my mistakes, so you don't have to make them in my behalf. But the reality is, big decisions like this change what we do for Jesus. Uh, if we're going to throw in another big decision, where do you live? Where do you choose to live? I um, got saved in a church that was in the middle of nowhere. In, well, it was in a village, really. It wasn't in the middle of nowhere. But within this church I was part of, there were some people who did live, like, properly in a field. <laughs> and... Uh, and they would sometimes be like, it's just really hard to share Jesus. And you'd be like, it's because you live in a field and cows cannot receive the gospel, right? Think about the big decisions you're making in light of the glorious calling that God's called us to, right? No one accidentally moves somewhere. Oh, gosh, what have I done? <laughs> oh, God, I moved house. I'm in the middle of nowhere. What's happened? Yeah? Put yourself in a position where you're able to be part of a church, and I know we say this all the time, and, and of course, I'm standing in a church speaking, of course I'm biased, but the, re- it's, the reality is true. If you want to flourish in your walk with God, if you want to flourish in being God's mission to the world, actually put yourself in a church. And if you're turning up two in four, you're probably not part of the church, right? I know that's bold, and I know there's stuff going on, I know it's London, and everyone is busy, Right? And I know when I say that, it means you have to go and sacrifice a bunch of things. But if Jesus is as good as he says he is, if biblical community is as good as God says it is, we've got to make some sacrifices. And I just I look at Elton and I'm amazed because so many people, so many Christians from this church have sacrificed, have moved, have shifted really big things. They have, if you like, uprooted their family and put them in a place that's completely unfamiliar because they believe in this. And I praise God for it. I am so grateful. I'm so amazed by what God has done in people's hearts. But it doesn't stop without them. We know there are a lot of broken people, thousands, hundreds of thousands around us. And we have the opportunity because when we plant multi-site, when we go to a local area, when we go and we're literally streets away, we have a better opportunity to serve the lost. And if this mission of God, if we're actually going to do something about it, some of us have to move. That's the reality. And it's something that God calls us to as a wider thing, but also here as a local church. We, have, we, have, we feel God is leading us towards multi-site, and we're trusting him that, that God is going to initiate people, that he's going to speak to people. And it happened to Eltham, and it will happen for the other, other places we're going to. And I, I th- it's tough. It's this tough place because I know sacrifice is really hard. Sacrifice is painful. But if Jesus is as good as he says, all of this is worth it. All of this is worth it. Thanks for listening to this talk from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk.